Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and this podcast is my way of sharing composing and songwriting advice from all sorts of creative people. You can find every episode for free at ComposerQuest.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast app. I'm very excited to bring you this episode with a composer whose music was a big part of my childhood, and maybe yours too. Grant Kirkhope composed the soundtracks to some of the biggest N64 games ever, Goldeneye, Perfect Dark, Donkey Kong 64, and the Banjo-Kazooie games. In this episode, I pick Grant's brain about what it was like working for Rare, and how he composed these soundtracks with very limited cartridge space. Grant also shares his favorite chord progressions, and he answers a bunch of fan questions that some of you sent me. It's going to be a fun episode. Stick around for a special mystery guest at the end, plus a new edition of Charlie's Music Production Lessons. Now, let's get on to my talk with Grant Kirko. Hey, Grant. Charlie! Nice to meet you. You too, sir. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing today? I'm jollying along. Well, Grant, it's an honor having you here on my podcast. Been a big fan of your music for many years. So That's very kind. Well, I might just start in asking you about my favorite soundtrack of yours, I think, is yeah, sure. from Banjo Tooie. As I was listening back, I realize that a lot of them are kind of deceptively simple. Like they might have simple catchy melodies, but the chords you're doing underneath things like cloud cuckoo land, for example. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was trying to play that on piano and I realized it was changing keys like every beat. Yeah. It's pretty complex. That one. starting a track like that what's your process i think you know i'm just one of those people that kind of messes around with stuff till i think it sounds good there's thought behind it but that's my basic principle of how to do stuff so like Kukulam was like i wanted to make it complex but all the stuff that i wrote for banjo kazooie i wanted to try and have some kind of harmony that was a bit different to most other things that you'd hear but hopefully on top there'd be a a melody that was quite simple that would disguise the fact that was kind of complicated harmony going on underneath. So that's a lot of the stuff that I write, I try to do that. I try to give it um, a chord sequence that's probably unexpected, but you don't notice that because the melody is pretty simple and pretty so hopefully catchy. Um, but that enables me to make things have a little hook in them that perhaps isn't expected. And that's why I think the Banjo Kazooie soundtracks have stuck in people's minds over the years because it has that kind of underneath thing that's slightly complicated, but the over the top thing, the melody is quite simple, yet there's something good on that you can't quite work out what it is, and it gives you that extra kind of catchiness. So that's the way I thought about it. I don't know if that works, but that was my kind of intention to try and, especially in things like Mad Monster Mansion on the first game, that there's a pretty dark harmony underneath there. But you wouldn't notice it because the melody is sort of quite simplistic and sort of catchy and hooky, hopefully. Give it the umpa umpa rhythm so it's quite comical anyway, and give it like a, like a, a catchy melody, and then you maybe don't notice so much that the underneath's a bit. Not quite what you think it would be, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I, that's a really good trick that I haven't really thought about before. Because, like, yeah, it does, on the surface, you, the oompa makes you think it's, like, one, four, five progressions or something like that. And yeah. just the fact that you can hum the melodies. But there's, like, so much chromatic shifts going on, it seems like, too. Which, I don't know. I always think that kind of helps with catchiness. Yeah, I think lots of times when people 
cover my stuff that I see tons of YouTube clips. A lot of people don't get it quite right because it sounds simpler than it is. So a lot of the times people get very close, but it's only a few people that really get the harmony structure completely correct a lot of the time because it's, um, it's, I think it's a, bit, it's a bit harder than you think it is. <laughs> At least I think it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I put a call out to fan questions for you. All right. And I just got a ton of them, so I'll just kind of sprinkle them in here and there. Yeah. Um, Reese Mankenberg was wondering, are the compositions closely tied to the layout of each level, or are they composed separately and edited to fit the game? I may not get to see the stuff before I write it, because it may be getting designed. So often I might get a, you know, a brief description from the design guy. So like it was Greg Mayles on the Banjo Games. And Greg's a great designer. So, you know, he, he wouldn't, you know, I think any composer worth the salt when someone says it's a forest or it's a desert or it's an ice cave is going to get a pretty good idea of what they're going to write. If I hear ice, I'm going to think about glockenspiel and celeste and pizzicato. or a forest, I might think about woodwind and bassoons and drums. You know, I would definitely always write for the level. I've never written anything without some kind of instruction, you know, because I think that doesn't work. I always say to people, you know, the, the game just knows what it wants. You've just got to give it to it. Like when I did the work on uh, Civilization Beyond Earth recently, I knew that I was getting the arid planet to do the kind of desert thing. Um, so, you know, I, I, I had, that was my direction. It was an arid planet and they wanted some music for it. So I wrote stuff that I thought would suit an arid science fiction thing. So there's some synths in there too and orchestra too. say is your favorite game you've worked on um, it really is Viva Pinata I just I love writing that kind of tear jerky music <laughs> I'm a bit of an old softie at heart so you know I've said it before it was my kind of take on that kind of classic Vaughan Williams Elgar sound and I don't for one second profess to get anywhere near it but that was my attempt at something like that because they're sort of big heroes of mine composers you know so I just tried to write something that was kind of English pastoral sounding, something like that. And I love writing that music, I really did. And I really enjoyed Kingdoms of Amalur 2 and the Civilization game that I've just done. They were both really great to do. Um, but I think Pinata really tugs at my heart because I, you know, I love being at Rare at that time and writing that music was fantastic. And it, it was the first time I used live orchestra and I really poured my heart into that game. Yeah. Yeah, especially like Fields of Gold, that piece. It's hard for me to remember which of those pieces is which because I just called them day one, day two, day six, night five. And then I left Rare and the design guy, Justin Cook on Piñata, had to name them all for the CD release. And he named them all, so I don't know. So I forget which is which. Oh, um, sure. So what, what were you thinking as being the difference between like a daytime theme versus a night theme? Um, it, I guess it's instrumentation and, you know, it's like it's a, it, the nights are a bit darker, a bit more tinkly, a bit more celeste and pizzicato and somber.
and the, and the daytime's a bit more upbeat and jolly and happy. You have a classical background, but also a metal background. Absolutely. Yeah. So how how did the two mix for you in, in with video game music? Yeah, that was weird. I think, you know, as a kid, I was I did the, the usual route of going through school and playing, you know, trumpet and stuff and all the rest and doing it properly and doing my exams and stuff, uh, you know, through my, uh, my years at, at school. Um, but I also picked up guitar when I was about 11 or 12. You know, I was kind of rock-based straight away, so I was like ACDC and Queen were my biggest things back then. Really, it was ACDC High Voltage and Queen Sheer Heart Attack that kind of taught me to play guitar. And I just gravitated more towards like the rocky metal side of it all. I got progressively more metal as I went on. But all the time I was going through college, the Royal Northern College of Music, playing trumpet, a classical degree. So yeah, it's a weird, weird kind of mix. I, got, I either liked Judas Priest or Elgar, there's no in-between. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think also it, it taught me a lot because, you know, because you like that kind of diverse kind of music, it teaches you an awful lot of stuff, you know, so you can use, you can learn about that kind of metal power you can put into orchestra stuff and it really, it's really effective. I got a question from a Twitter follower. It's Chase Face. What did you do to keep your spirits high when you doubted your future artistic career? It's not like it's a, it's a thing in the past. That's an ongoing thing. Like I have constant doubt about how good I am all the time. I never, ever think that I'm very good, usually. Um, like I, I generally think that I underachieve in just about everything that I do. Um, I can't seem to shake that. I've kind of called it the curse of aspiration, that no matter what you do, you want the next thing, and what you've just done is crap, and you need to be better. Um, I, I can't shake that. I guess I'm only ever really... 75% happy with anything that I've written. I sometimes get brief moments of, oh, I, 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 that's good and I like it, but it fades quite quickly <laughs> to, to like, oh, Grant, you could have done better than that. So that's a constant battle for me. I, I don't think that it's a, I'm not the happiest of people a lot of the time. My wife and kids will soon tell you that. <laughs> I'm grumpy most of the time. Um, so, you know, I do fight with that and I, I don't think I'll ever not fight with it. I think I'm always questioning you know, and hopefully that will keep me on my toes and to try to make myself better and try to push myself further and be better composer than I am. sort of favorite chord or favorite chord progression that you use? Um, I can describe it like just in C major-y sort of terms. So I like sort of C major to A flat major. I like that kind of play between the E and the E flat. Um, I like things like C minor, A flat minor. C minor, F sharp major. I like playing with that a lot. I still like C major to D major with a C in the bass, that kind of magical sound. Yeah, that's my kind of favorite things that I like to play with. You'll hear that a lot in my music, I think, that kind of stuff. And I really like playing with minor triads a lot. So like if you think of that Harry Potter one that goes that one right that's just a that that is just a minor triad after minor triad the whole tune is just minor triads right there's nothing major in it at all hmm. which is like strictly against harmonic training if you did that at school you get told you were writing rubbish <laughs> but like I love that kind of trying to make a melody out of minor triads I, I do that quite a lot as well in the kind of bigger scale stuff that I've done in orchestra. I did that a lot in Kingdoms of Amalur, 
that was something that I'd learned along the way and I kind of liked it from Mr. Williams. Also in Amalur, I did a, a section there called the, um, the Plains of Erethel, and that's like just major triads played all together. So like, you know, consecutive seats all over the place, which is like against the law. Um, mm. It was a very lush, grassy area in the game. So I wanted to write something that reflected it. Do you start with chords or do you have a melody idea in your head? It could be either way, really. I don't, I don't have any rules about that. Yeah. If I, if I'll, just, I'll just start off and see what comes up first. Cool. So, yeah. So a lot of people asked, uh, including Jeffrey Schwinghammer, was asking, how did the limitations of the cartridge affect what sounds you could use? And um, well, that, that, yeah, that was just down to size. So you know, on every game, there's a limit, especially on the cartridge, to how much stuff you can get in there. So, you know, on Golden, I was very small. It was tiny. That was the smallest of all the games. So you just had to, you know, find your sounds. You'd sample them at 44 kilohertz, and then you'd knock them down as far as you could to, like, 11 kilohertz, 16 kilohertz, 8 kilohertz, if you can get away with it. And then you compress them again on top of that. So, like, things like cymbals on Golden, you could, a cymbal release was way too long. You'd have to kind of cut it off and loop this, the end, put the decay, and put an envelope on it so it faded away. So you go, it would go like that, hmm. which is pretty crap. Um, you know, so that's a lot of the reason why things like Banjo Kazooie, you'd find lots of um, sort of percussive instruments like marimba because marimba is very as a very small sample. That's why I used it so much because so it was a tiny sample and it didn't take up much memory and I could use it a lot and it sounded good. I only sampled that instrument at one pitch. There was one pitch in there. I sampled a C and it just played it all over the keyboard, the same sample. It wasn't, there was no more than one sample, that was it. But it was tiny samples that so was good to use. Like the, also the theremin was just, just a sine wave, so it was a tiny, tiny sample. I think sometimes because you had such limitations on the, what instruments you could use, you, you had to write a good tune. You know, you had, to, you had to kind of make sure you wrote a decent chord to and a good tune because you had no great synthy washes you could put everywhere and big reverbs. It just didn't exist. There was one reverb on the N64 that we used for all the games. Oh. Um, never, never changed. It was the same one. Huh. That was just because we messed around with it till it sounded like we thought it was. But the, 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 the reverb that came with the N64 was that Mario sort of bathroom sounding reverb um, that hmm. gets used a lot in that game. We kind of changed that ourselves, but only because that was just a list of numbers on a page, coefficients all over the place, and me and Graham Norgate just sat and changed the numbers at random, not even knowing what we were doing, because it was too, way too complicated. <laughs> you know, proper, proper programmer DSP stuff. So we just sat there and changed the numbers until it sounded all right. And the, the earlier games, the reverb was quite distorted, because it sounded all right. We had the right delay and all that, and the right kind of right sound, but we couldn't, we couldn't get rid of the distortion. And eventually a programmer fixed it for us in the later games, but that was just how it worked. So. Huh. Do you think composing in that style... I mean, how did that change you as a composer for later games? Do you think it it did, or are you just now free and you're like, uh, all right, I can do anything I want? Yeah, I, I don't think the way I compose has changed at all. It's exactly the same as when I started in 1995. You've got better resources now. You know, I can use big sample libraries and write proper stereo streams, and that's great, you know. The only thing I'd say about music these days is because the MIDI stuff in the old day was so easy to manipulate, you could do all that kind of channel fade stuff, you know, way easier than you can now. Like manipulating stereo streams is memory intensive and you've got to be in RAM and all that kind of stuff and crossfading it takes extra memory and, you know, so it can be done, but it's, it's way harder and it takes away more space as opposed to just manipulating little MIDI stuff, you know. So I'd say that, um, yeah, nothing's changed for me the way I write stuff, I'm hopefully better than I was back then, but the way I do it's identical. I remember hearing something about 
since you had so little space on the cartridges, you had to be a little bit creative about sound design too. Yeah. Like uh, using the same samples for banjo, for example, and pitch shifting it down for the enemies. Yeah, like clankers, noises are just banjos, samples, pitched right down. It sounds like a whale, but it's just banjos, samples played really slowly. Oh! So yeah, tons of that stuff went on. You'd reuse stuff all over the place. You had to be creative with it all, you know, because it's such a little space. Yeah. I think Banjo 2 was like maybe two megabit. Banjo 1 was maybe one megabit. For everything, music and sound effects. Whoa. (laughs) It's pretty small. That's crazy. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Banjo Tui, Ben Jobo on Twitter asked, I enjoy Grunty Industries, especially the solo melody bit. Any specific inspiration for it? Except Satan, of course. Of course, uh, apart from that, yeah. (laughs) Um, um, Not really. I I just tried to write something I thought was a kind of would suit a, a, a grubby factory. So it's got low baritone sax. I mean, you wouldn't really get baritone saxes playing like that in real life, probably. You know, um, so it's got that stuff in it. It just needs to sound, you know, grubby and dirty and hopefully reflect the level it was written for, you know. about games or movies it's like it's all about telling a story isn't it you know it is just storytelling end of the day so you just use your imagination i think that you know it's it's, it's as simple as that cool yeah it seems like from reading about your times at rare it sounded like it's just a really awesome place to work it's like working on really cool creative projects there yeah it was like when i first got there it was like unbelievable um, you know, that I never had a job in my life. That was my first job. I've been playing in rock bands since leaving university, you know, so like that was just phenomenal to get, well, to get a real job and get paid was pretty special in the first place. Um, but to write music was amazing. And like, the, you know, the Stamper family were truly fantastic to work for. Tim and Chris and, you know, all of them worked there. Carol, Tim's wife worked there. Louise's sister worked there. His mum and dad worked there. His bro- the other brother, Chris and Stephen, worked there. All the Stamper family were there. You know, it's just a really fantastic environment. They really were nice to the staff. Everyone got along. You know, it was, and it, you really felt you were, you were in somewhere magical. It felt like that all the time. So, like, I was just, you know, I can't put into words really. I was overjoyed to be there. It was like fantastic. I, I had such a fantastic time there. And they were, they were really, oh, I miss all the banjo team. I was, I was with those guys for a lot of the time, and, you know, I miss those people. We're a really the reason Banjo Kazooie's has got that quirky humor about it is because the whole team messed around with that all the time. It was just the banter going in the office together, talking to each other. It was just like it was just like the game, you know. It just it's just a reflection of the team in game form, you know. So it was all that stuff was just we just did it because that's what we did, you know. We're all still friends now, and it, you know it was it was a really truly great time. How do you think, uh, like game developers? these days what kind of advice would you have to them if they're trying to keep that kind of mentality like or like people working in a bigger game development group like how do you keep it fresh and fun i guess that's that's hard that's really hard you just got to get along really but you know i'd say the the biggest thing i think killing games these days is overscoping like the game never quite comes out as you want it to be because it gets overscoped at the start and you just panic at the end and you don't get it in. So all the great stuff you want to put in the game, you miss it out at the end because you can't do it. And there's plenty of games come out very recently that have suffered from those problems, like overscoping, and it's just not very good. It comes out, the fans reject it, the franchise dies, and the company closes. And I have to say, I always think that like in games companies, the kind of disciplines that are there, like programmers, artists, musicians, sound effects guys, all that stuff, right? That's very quantifiable. It's very easy to kind of train to be that person, to train to write code, to train to animate, to train to draw, create backgrounds, write music, you name it. It's very easy, right? But to be a designer, 
It's hard to train for that, right? There's no really set path. So I'd say the design people are the ones at the top that call all the shots. That's how it works, right? The rest of the dev guys, like me included, just do what they want. What they want me to write, I write it. What they want the programmers to program, they make it, right? That's how it works. It's on their shoulders, really. And the great designers know all about scoping and make sure that they don't ask too much or make the game smaller and better. So make something small and excellent as opposed to large and flabby and not very good. And if you get the extra features, you know, maybe you can fit that in later, but the core elements of the game that the most fun part of the game, like Nintendo always talk about, those core elements are the most important part of the game, right? And I think, in my opinion, that's where games are falling down at the moment. It's getting overscoped and badly designed. It's really easy to have a really wacky, great, massive idea that sounds fantastically fun, but can you really do it in the time allotted? And that's what you have to ask yourself. I like a lot of the indie guys because the indie guys just tend to get on with it and there's no one looking over the shoulder saying it needs to be done by here, they do it when it's ready. And I've seen a lot of indie talks at GDC where indie guys said the game's going to take six months, it's taken them four years because they've overscoped. But it doesn't matter for them, they're not getting pushed by anybody, they can do what they like. So I kind of, the indie thing, I like it a lot because they just go with their hearts and do something they really want to do as opposed to the other way. Yeah. Well, a question maybe kind of along these lines. Um, Andreas Jorgensen asked me to ask you what you think of Bird Ball. Well, that's what? a classic. Um, of course, I'm working on Bird Ball, so is he. Um, so um, that's Mr. William Pugh, who offers Stanley Parable fame. That's his new game. Bit of an odd one, really. It's a bit weird. And, I, I you know, I don't want to give too much away. But, there's, you know, there's other parts to come along and... Bird Ball seems overly simplistic at the moment, but all I can say is, you know, keep an eye on it. It's going to be great. William Pugh is one of those guys that is a great designer and knows what he's doing and has lots of fun up his sleeve that I think we're all going to love, and I'm really honoured that he asked me to do it. What's your process in writing the music for that? Um, I must admit, William's uh, pretty musical himself, so we've had a lot of to and fro with stuff. So I've, I did quite a lot of stuff like at the start that was a bit experimental, you know, kind of to try and work out the way we were going to go with it. Um, and he knows what he wants. And he likes the old stuff that I've done too, so that's good. So uh, I'm really enjoying that. It's great fun. Cool. Fan question for you from Steve Lemke. Is there an explanation for the instrumental similarities between your complex theme from Goldeneye and the intro theme for House of Cards? <laughs> I don't know about that. Have you heard uh, that before? Uh, yeah, another House of Cards tune, but that was written like very recently in Golden. I was written in like 1997, so I don't know there's much connection there. Um, no, is it to that? <laughs> okay. Yarumasi on Twitter asks, were you aware of how futuristic and on point the Perfect Dark soundtrack was? It sounds like stuff made now. No, it's a, uh, that's a short answer to that one. You know, it's funny actually, because when I, I was thinking about this the other day, and like, when I first started at Rare, because I w- I'd come from a pretty rock background, I was using like orchestral samples, like violins and stuff and all that, along with like synths and drums and the rest of it. I did that in Golden I Am Perfect Dark. And then I kind of, after those games finished, it just seemed to go more orchestral, the stuff that Rare wanted me to do. So I kind of got out of the habit of doing that. And I've had to come back to that a bit now. And I kind of panicked a little bit, going, oh, a lot of of the modern composers are using like hybrid orchestra with like synths and stuff mixed together. And I was going, oh, God, I don't know how to do that. And then I thought, just a minute, you know, I did that ages ago. I know it sounds mad, but it only really struck me a couple of weeks ago. I thought, you know, I used to do this and not even think about it. So when I was doing the civilization stuff, I had to use synth in that. And I was like, you know, I do know how to do this because I did it years ago. I just forgot that I knew how to do it. So yeah, sorry, a bit, a bit of a long answer. But yeah, so the Perfect Dark thing was just, at the time, X-Files was big. So I was trying to get that kind of spacey X-Files-y sound. That's what I thought anyway. I don't, I don't think it sounds like that, but that was certainly in my mind. still use the same old chord sequences I've always done in Perfect Dark, just using synths. It's amazing how you can dress stuff up 
um, no one knows you. It's the same thing, but just at a different guise. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So it teaches you a lot, you know, because, you know, most people, like we talked about before, don't understand the harmonic part. They just understand the tune part of it. So, like, the harmonies could be the same, but the tune could be different, different style. You know, so, yeah, I mean, I love Brian Perfect Dark. It was great fun. So I've done quite a lot of, since Golden, I've done quite a few comedic things, like the Banjo Games and... I was doing Donkey Kong 64 too. So it was good to do Perfect Dark. So I mean, I really enjoyed doing it. It was great fun. Yeah. I love the synth voice intro to the game. All right. But, yeah. And um, that bit was actually done by Graham Norgate because Graham Norgate started that game off and then he left the company. So that, that intro logo was his. And it was actually, a, there was a, a choir library out back then. I forget what it was called. And that was just one choir sample. You just held the note down and the, the voice. It was an actual proper sample, quite a big actually for the game at the time, but we crushed it down. But it just, you just hold the note down and the, the entire sample just went and the, all the voices parted. So that was, a, that was a, a proper vocal performance from a choir. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah another one of my favorites from Perfect Dark, um, Datadyne Central Extraction. I like that theme. Uh, 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 is that know. the one that goes... Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That was a good one. That was, I think that was the first piece I wrote for the game, actually. When Graham left, that was the first piece that I, I tackled for the game. were you using to make that like what software uh, well all that game all those games were done the same way right we just we'd create a little midi orchestra whatever it was instruments and you'd and you'd actually physically put that into the depth the n64 dev kit oh. so all the sounds sat on the cartridge in the dev kit well not on the cartridge they sat on the de- inside the dev kit right in ram so and then we'd hook our pcs up to the dev kit via midi and we'd use Cubase to actually play the actual samples in the machine. You know, sometimes when you do stuff like that, you'd have to write a piece of music and convert it and make it play, and then get the samples and make it play in the machine. So you didn't quite know how it was going to sound like, but because we actually triggered the samples in the machine, it would sound exactly the way we did it. Oh. So you built up a little sample list, you know, 20, well, I don't know, maybe, I guess maybe 70 or 80 instruments, little bits and pieces in there. And then you could just it'd have a number, like 26 was flute, let's say. So in Cubase, you'd go to the start of the track, you'd just go to the little list editor, you stick in, in the control section, number 26, and it would select that instrument. Hmm. So we'd found samples that we liked, we'd resampled them, looped them to make them as small as possible, bunged them in the N64, and then trigger them via MIDI from the computer. So it was just like using Cubase as you would normally, but you're just playing the samples actually in the N64, and we'd get the output from the N64 through our speakers so we could hear what we were doing. Hmm. Cool. Have you heard of people like using an N64 for performances or anything? Yes, yes, yeah, I think so. And also that like Game Boy too, I think it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard the Game Boy thing, but I didn't realize it could be the same with an N64. Well, I guess it, I mean people lots of people have hacked the ROMs, you know, they've hacked into the cartridge so they can get access to all that stuff. So it's if they hack it, they can get it. It's all all my instruments are sat inside there waiting to go. <laughs> cool. I was going to ask, what do you think is your overall catchiest melody? Like, is there uh, one that comes back to you all the time? I guess it probably is Click Clock Woods, you know, I think. Because it's really simple. And I've seen tons of choirs, and I, someone sent me something this morning of an orchestra playing it. And it's, you know, it's a really, it's, like, it's hardly even got a B section. It's just got like an A section. <laughs> just, you know, it's a, there's a little bit of a B section, but not much, you know. Um, and that, and that was, was your the, first for Banjo-Kazooie? Yeah, or? Okay. yeah, when it changed from Dream uh, to Banjo-Kazooie, I, I, I was just trying to write, I wrote a piece of music that I thought would suit a, a Mario platform game. It wasn't for any level at all. That was the first piece I wrote before the game became anything. It was just written to try and show Tim and Greg, Tim Stamper and Greg Mails, that I could write something that was a jolly platform tune. Yeah, and I think that probably is, I'd say it's probably pretty catchy from one of my tunes, but I think that, see, a lot of people can still, you can whistle that pretty easily. 
it just come into my head every now and then. So yeah, probably that one. Yeah, a lot of your themes are like burned in my head, in, <laughs> in a good way. But um, <laughs> well, hopefully yeah. that was the whole point. I mean, you know, Tim Stamper and Greg Mails were like massive Nintendo fans, and they really, when I first got there, they made me play. Well, they made me like listen to lots and lots of Nintendo music. So this is we want this, these melodies. They loved that Nintendo stuff, the really catchy Mario stuff. They really, you know, they loved it to death. And also, they really liked the LucasArts games with the IMU system, like the early ones, like David Tentacle and Indiana Jones, even and Full Throttle, and especially Monkey Island. But I think with the Nintendo thing, they write that kind of quite happy, jazzy style a lot of the time. And that isn't me, really. And I, when it came to banjo, I wanted to make sure I wrote, because we were trying to take Mario on. So I wanted to make sure I wrote something that was identifiably different to that kind of sound. And that's how part of the way I came up with that kind of quirky, oddball sound for the banjo games. Do you have any tips on writing good looping music? Like what? Um, well, you know, you just got to do your best. You usually get a couple of minutes to do it, you know, so try and cram in there as much as you can. That's what I do. Try and get as many sections in there and keep it interesting. Alex Samuel asks, what's your favorite character to play as in Bond multiplayer? Oh, I don't know. I tell you what, no, I, didn't, I didn't play an awful lot of that game, I have to say. I probably like playing as Pierce, probably. Uh, you know, because Pierce is a man. Um, actually, where I live in Agora Hills, um, just across the road here, the lady who lives across the road is actually Pierce Brosnan's PA, which you believe is just p- peculiar. Huh. First started talking to her, I didn't realize what, realize what she did, but she's Pierce Brosnan because he lives in Malibu. And uh, Pierce Brosnan's PA is just across the street. So how bizarre is that? Huh. 200 yards. <laughs> did you ever hang out with the uh, Bond team? We got, to, um, we got invited down to... I forget the studio. Pinewood is it? I forget where they filmed it. Because um, uh, the, the, the Bond team got invited down there before I joined them for, the, for doing Golden, I think. And then we got re-invited down again for the next one. I think it's The World Is Not Enough. Mm-hmm. So we got to go down and watch, watch a day's filming down there because I think Eon really thought we were going to do the next game. They wanted us to do the next, the next game after Golden Eye again because it was so mm. successful. And they made tons of cash out of it. Um, but we knew in it we weren't going to do it, but we went down anyway uh, to see the filming. So I was watching the scene where there's a bit in that film where he has a motorbike and he, he, he goes into its side and he crashes into a well and then he throws a rope into a helicopter and the helicopter crashes and he jumped down the well. That's a scene that I watched them filming. Oh, wow. Awesome. So, but like it was nowhere near as cool as it looks in the movie because the bike was on a platform on its side that they pulled along on ropes. Oh. <laughs> he skidded it down, so that wasn't very exciting. The helicopter was just an empty shell, nothing, nothing in it, no rotors, that they loaded on a crane. And then when he threw the rope, that was it. They put the brooches in later, the guys inside later, all that was put in by CG later. Um, so it's pretty unexciting when you see it. It's a bit of a letdown, really, I've got to say. That's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I didn't realize that you were also the voice of Donkey Kong. In Indeed. Donkey Kong. <laughs> okay, that's me. Okay. Uh, that's great. Bana- banana, banana. I did that so you were working on Banjo-Tooie and Donkey Kong, like, very close together in time? or And Perfect Dark as well, all yeah. three of them together, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did, did you ever feel like you were morphing themes or bringing back themes from the other games? Maybe not with yeah. Perfect Dark, but... <laughs> well, no, like, I think with Banjo and Ban- Banjo-Tooie and Donkey Kong 64, I used pretty much the same instrument set there. It's about the same. I didn't have time to do it anymore. I was so busy. So, you know, to separate Donkey Kong, another platformer from Banjo, another platformer was hard. Um, and I think Donkey Kong probably sounds slightly darker in mood than Banjo-Tooie does. I, that's the way I kind of envisioned it. But Banjo-Tooie was darker than Banjo-Kazooie, I thought, harmonically, mm-hmm. anyway. So, yeah, so that was a bit tricky. And then Perfect Dark was also separate. But I was kind of going from one to next. I was going to Chief for Banjo, Chief for Donkey Kong, Chief for Perfect Dark, back again, and just kept rotating like that. So, um, yeah, that was a bit tricky. But I had to do it because like, Graham Norgate left the company at the time. So he get, I got, he was doing Jet Force Gemini and Perfect Dark together. So Robin Beeland got to do Jet Force Gemini, and I got to do, got to do Perfect Dark. That's how we split it up to try and get the work done. And that's why I didn't do any sound effects on Perfect Dark or Donkey Kong, or maybe only a few. Because I just had time to write tunes, so Evelyn Fisher did, did the sound effects on Donkey Kong, and Martin Penny did the sound effects on Perfect Dark. And also Dave Clinic helped me out in Perfect Dark too. He did the cutscene music. Cool. Well, 
Grant, I have a tradition on my podcast that's just started um, where the previous guest asks the current guest a question. All right. Um, so Ben Burns asked, if you could ask yourself one question 10 years from now, what would that be? That's a good question. Why didn't you try harder? <laughs> it seems like you're a very hard worker, I would say. I try. Yeah. Um, do you have a question for the next guest? So will it be a composer you talk to next? Uh, most likely. Uh, to be honest, I don't even know who it will be yet. Oh, <laughs> so. All right, let me think about it. Uh, what, what's a good composer question? Where would you like to be in a year's time in your career? That's a good one. Well, Grant, I really appreciate it that you could come on the podcast here. And for people who want to get your music, how should they do that? Um, well, it, it's on iTunes and Amazon and stuff. So there's, there's the, you know, the Pinata and uh, Civilization on there and Bandicoot Nuts and Bolts. And what else is on there? Desktop Dungeons. It's on Spotify too, actually, I think quite a lot of it. Okay. So, uh, yeah, those are places to go. But, you know, I'm, I'm on at Twitter at Grant Kirkup and Facebook, I'm on there, and IMDB, check my stuff out on there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are there any other projects you're working on that you felt like letting people know about? Yeah, I've done, I've done a tune for Lobo Destroyer. That's a kind of platformer. I'm still working on Hex Heroes uh, right now. Oh, yeah. I'm still working on uh, Bird Ball, of course, with Mr. Mr. William Pugh. Uh, that I'll be developing, I would think, imminently into something spectacular, more spectacular than it already is. Uh, so, yeah, that's my current workload right now. Cool. Can you uh, give people a little inside scoop in what the Hex Heroes music is going to be like? Uh, well, it's going to be, you know, area-based, and there's some pretty... I've done some quite different stuff for that, actually. Mario Castaneda's, like, has some good, really good ideas about, um, you know, because it's obviously it's a pla it's a, an RTS game, so you have to sit on levels and build stuff, you know, like, strategy stuff so you got the tunes will be probably not too in your face but i've done th maybe three or four of those or maybe three i'm working on one right now um which i like a lot there's some little wacky ideas in there i think that, that's going to be a bit different for me so i hope you like it cool all right well thanks so much grant no problem charlie anytime give me a shout i'm yeah. always around all right thanks all right. we'll see ya see you soon what an awesome guy I really enjoyed that talk, so thanks again to Grant for being up for the interview. His website is grantkirkhope.com, spelled K-I-R-K-H-O-P-E. Now, before we get to our special mystery guest and my music production lesson, I have kind of a major piece of news. I'm going to be taking a hiatus from regular interviews for a while. I'm at a turning point right now. I'd love to keep going with this podcast, but I also would love to dedicate as much time as I can to my own composing, and I have a bunch of composing projects I want to start up in 2015. So here's the deal. I'm calling this the Season 3 finale, with Season 4 start date to be determined, while I reassess where Composer Quest is going to go. If a bunch of new patrons start coming out of the woodwork, then I'll, I will be able to start Season 4 right away. I've done the math, and it would take about 86 patrons to support me producing this podcast and making around minimum wage, if everyone chips in a dollar or two per episode. Is that even possible, or is that just crazy talk? I don't know. But if you're one of those listeners who's been enjoying the show and would be willing to pledge a buck or two per episode to make sure that Season 4 happens, you can do so at ComposerQuest.com patron. And thanks to all of you patrons who have been supporting me over this past year. I really appreciate it. So, to my Composer Quest fans out there, I hope you're not too disappointed by this news of my hiatus. I personally hate it when my favorite podcasts fizzle out. So I just want to take this break to make sure that when I do come back, I'll be able to dedicate my full attention to the show. In the meantime, feel free to stay connected by emailing me, charlie at composerquest.com. Moving on to more fun news, I do have a special Christmas episode planned for next Wednesday, so stay tuned. Now, I promised you a special mystery guest. I have to say, he's kind of a child prodigy when it comes to music theory, and he's got quite the personality, too. Say hi, Junior. Hi, Junior. <clears throat> yeah, we're still working out some kinks, 
But Junior here is going to help us analyze music. Junior, what do you think? Should we take a listen to some of Grant Kirkhope's melodies? Sounds great. Well, let's start with the tune that Grant thinks is his catchiest, Click Clock Wood. Okay, let's listen. Got anything for us, Junior? Let me start with the statistics regarding the pitches in this melody. It's in C major. Of the 112 notes in the section we heard, the most common pitch is G, which is the fifth scale degree. It appears 25% of the time. The next most common pitch is the tonic, C, which appears 21% of the time. That doesn't seem too surprising. Did you find anything weird in the stats? Well, Charlie, scale degrees 3 and 4, E and F, only appear two times each out of the 112 notes. Huh. I also analyzed the melody for steps, leaps, and repeated pitches. Oh, uh, remind me again what that means? A step is when the melody moves either a minor second or major second away. A leap is anything larger. And a repeated pitch is when a pitch is repeated. But if you don't know that, I think you have problems. Ha ha ha. Very funny, Junior. Alright, what did you find? I found that this melody uses steps 52% of the time, leaps 34% of the time, and repeats pitches only 14% of the time. Huh, cool. Speaking of repeated notes, I noticed that when there's a big rest, the melody seems to repeat the same pitch it left off on. Maybe that helps people remember the melody a little bit more. Good for you, Charlie. Alright, well, can we listen to another of Grant's pieces? You're the boss. How about Hailfire Peaks? That one seems to get stuck in my head a lot. Very interesting. The melody seems to be in both C major and C minor. The first part of the melody is in the C major scale, but then it uses a flatted sixth scale degree, an A flat. Is that an actual scale? Yes, it's called the harmonic major scale. Huh, you learn something new every day. Actually, I learned 51,693,255 new things every second. Wow, and here you are spending time with me. Well, Charlie, we all make sacrifices. Plus, you haven't built me legs yet. Sorry, Junior. Someday. Okay, can we get back to the Hailfire Peaks melody? Okay. In analyzing the pitches, I found that once again the most common pitch is G, the fifth scale degree, heard 28% of the time. The next most common pitches were E, the third scale degree, and B, the seventh, both heard 18% of the time. The tonic, C, is heard 15% of the time. Anything else weird this time around? Yes. Once again, F, the fourth scale degree, is not used much. In fact, it doesn't appear at all in the clip we just heard. Huh. Well, how about the steps, leaps, and repeated pitches? The melody uses stepwise motion 37% of the time, leaps 40% of the time, and repeats pitches 23% of the time. Hmm. So... It's leaping around and repeating pitches a little more than Click Clock Woods. That makes me think back to our earworm expert, Dr. Vicky. She was saying that stepwise motion is likely to get stuck in people's heads. But, I don't know, it's hard to say if one melody or the other is catchier. There are so many factors. Junior, what do you think makes for a catchy melody? 
I could tell you the equation, but I think your mind would explode. Darn. Surely, can I ask you a question? Sure. When can I be a real boy? Uh, sorry, Junior. I think we have to start wrapping up this segment of the podcast. <clears throat> Surely, can I ask you another question? Okay. Oh, grow up, Junior. All right, now it's time for another edition of... My indie game company, Untied Games, is now working on its next project, a sci-fi, roguelike, dual-stick, top-down shooter game. Lots of adjectives. Anyways, the concept art and game mechanics have gotten me really excited, to the point where I stayed up till 5am working on a new soundtrack idea. I'll get to that in just a minute. But first I thought I'd share my initial concept that will most likely be scrapped. I was inspired by my last interview with Ben Burns when he talked about creating a game soundtrack that had three different music layers to fade between and change the mood. I liked his idea of having the same chord progressions, but each layer is in a different genre, like ambient, orchestral, or jazz. So anyways, I wanted to try making four music layers that would morph between each other in a set cycle. I named the tracks Peace, Panic, Conflict, and Resolution, and they'd cycle through in that order. I'll give you a quick glimpse of each. Here's Peace. Here's Panic. Here's Conflict. Here's resolution. The peace and conflict tracks are so different from each other, they really needed the in-between tracks to glue them together. And I tried to keep those in-between tracks as harmonically simple as I could. So here's a sample of how these four tracks sound fading from one to the other. The main thing I learned about myself is that I have much more trouble coming up with intense battle music than I do ambient music. But the game mostly needs this intense music. Our lead developer, Will, thought the conflict track would fit best, but I was actually the least happy with that track. So I was back to the drawing board. I was scanning some of the new sounds I got with Ableton Suite, and I really liked the string section pizzicato sound. So I started coming up with a sequence of plucked notes to drive the song along. One thing I tried to do is accent unexpected beats. Normally, you think about accents coming from the intensity of how certain notes are played, and I did some of that. But I also thought about making accents out of unexpected twists and turns in the sequence of notes. It's kind of hard to explain, but if I just made a regular pattern of arpeggios, it would be a lot more boring. Had I followed my original path, it might have sounded something like this. Instead of that, I broke up the pattern in a few key spots.
is the next note you want to hear this. That G would put us in G minor, a fourth up from D minor where we started. Modulating that way is a very Bach-like thing to do. Bach did it all the time in his fugues, and it helps make the music seem like it's progressing forward. So in keeping with centuries and centuries of tradition, I decided to modulate up a fourth and repeat the same phrase. But now I was in the same position, wanting to modulate up a perfect fourth again to C minor. I thought, well, why don't I just keep modulating? I went through all 12 keys until I got back to D minor at the start of the loop. I was kind of inspired by listening to Grant Kirkhope's Cloud Cuckoo Land, which does some crazy modulating that goes around the circle of fifths and hits almost every key in just four measures. If you're constantly modulating, the listener will never feel totally settled, which is perfect for intense battle music, if that's what my piece was going to turn into. I was also kind of inspired by the endless staircase music from Super Mario 64. It seems to keep going up and up, like a barber pole. I blogged about that illusion before. If you're interested, check it out at composerquest.com slash Mario Staircase. That illusion works because the melody is actually happening in multiple octaves. The lines are just gradually fading in at the lowest octave, rising up, and fading out at the highest octave. What I did wasn't exactly the same, but I did add in more layers and more octaves of plucking strings, up to five octaves during the climax. Before I play you the whole track, I'll just quickly give you a few other things to listen for. The vibraphone part was me playing basically random notes and just thinking in terms of a gradually ascending contour. In order to make these orchestral samples seem a little more realistic, I've noticed that it helps to double parts. So I doubled flute with violin, oboe with bassoon and strings, timpani with a snare drum. I even gradually bring in bowed strings underneath the pizzicato strings, which doesn't really make sense, but it works to thicken up the texture. So these instruments might not sound all that realistic, but I feel like you can get away with it a little more in video games than in a film score, for example. One last thing I wanted to point out, I drew in a gradual tempo change over the whole track, which is one of the major bonuses of working with only MIDI instruments. I recommend trying to add tempo changes if your music is feeling flat. The one drawback is that it's going to be tough to fade between this track and another track in the game, but I'll figure something out. Before I leave you with the full mix, I just wanted to let you know that you can find all these music production lessons at composerquest.com cmpl, or you can search for Charlie's music production lessons in the iTunes store or in the podcast app of your choice. Now here's the track, codenamed Dualstick C, and keep in mind that it's still in the early stages. I'm going to add a few more layers to fill it out and work on the mix a bit. 